You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, I am super excited to have uh, Renee with us. Uh, Renee, I think I first heard you uh, speaking at like a pocket pocket gamer pot, uh, talk or something. And I was like, wow, she is brilliant. And I really hope that I can get to talk to her sometime. And, and here you are. So I've, I've got like so many questions and stuff to go over. Probably won't have time for them all, but I'm, I'm just super excited for you to be here. Um, but before we dive into stuff, you know, I'd love for you to just, you know, tell me the story. How did you end up in gaming? What's your story? Oh my goodness, that's that's quite a story. And and thank you so much for having me here. Um, it's it's really fun to to do these things and, and to talk to new audiences. Um, I've been a video game player for almost my entire life. My father was very much into first person shooters on the PC, starting DOS uh, first person shooters, and he introduced me to games through them. So my first four games in order were actually uh, Doom. Duke Nukem 3D. Oh no, it was Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, <laughs> Duke Nukem 3D, and then Pokemon Yellow. So I got a little different start to video games than my peer group, but they became an important part of my life. I found them to be really engaging forms of storytelling and medium, you know, encountering Half-Life for the first time and seeing how they told the story in an immersive manner by events actually happening in the game just changed my idea completely of, uh, video games and how they communicate the environment and story. And then admittedly, I was an only child to older parents with no children in my neighborhood. So unless I was doing homework or playing outside, I was playing video games and online video games became a place where I got to practice my social skills because I truthfully didn't have many friends when I was younger. Uh, and so being able to practice that in MMOs and on forums actually helped me a lot. I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't realize that video game development was a potential career and a possible career. For some reason, I enjoyed video games, but I never really heard about video game developers or what video game developers did. So when I was looking at career paths, I decided to go into engineering with the focus in mechanical mm -hmm. engineering to become a biomechanical engineer. And I graduated and tried to become and did become a engineer in biotech. But it was my senior year of college that I met game developers for the first time <laughs> and realized that they were passionate, creative people who loved video games and for the most part were quite like myself. So I decided I would start re-navigating re my career, uh, mm -hmm. redirecting it to the video game industry. So I taught myself programming on the side. I switched over to the software team at the biotech company I was at. Actually started working on mini games to help detect uh, cognitive ability in children who are susceptible to concussions. Wow. And then ended up getting into the game industry from there. I started my own studio, mostly because I was having trouble getting hired at other studios, and then began taking on contract work across a huge range of things from 
server development to production to game journalism to marketing, and then finally went down more of that project management route uh, until uh, my work with the IGDA actually landed me as executive director while I still run my own game studio on the side. Quite the story. I realize that's quite <laughs> quite a hefty one, uh, but my path was not as direct as many within the industry. No, that's great. Although I think we do need to go back. And why Pokemon yellow rather than the traditional red or blue? Um, I think that was... I. Red and blue came out and I begged my parents for it. And <laughs> my parents are very slow about getting around to presents, especially when it comes to things that are popular because <laughs> they want to make sure it's not, you know, a pet rock kind of thing where yeah. it's going to be a fad for a week. So then when they were buying it for me, I think Pokemon Yellow had just come out. And like many small children at the time, I was a huge fan of Pikachu. So they, they noticed Pikachu. Uh, my dad still calls Pokemon Pikachu. So uh, they went with that version. Well, that's awesome. I actually liked Yellow because I really wanted to get like all three of the starter Pokemon just because I like to have the stacked team, you know? So I, I was a little jealous. I think I might have eventually gotten Pokemon Yellow too, but uh, I love it. I like that you just had Pikachu following you around. You could turn around <laughs> and talk with him and he'd react to you. That just felt more like being in, in the world, truly. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was it was like a really nice addition without actually having to really change that much within the game. So well done. Yeah. Pokemon has done a really good job of that. <laughs> so what games are you playing now? Well, I'm currently playing the World of Warcraft Shadowlands expansion because uh, I, I've been in the same World of Warcraft guild for the last 13 years. Uh, so for me, that's a, a social activity as much as it is a gameplay and activity. I have been playing uh, Magic Arena. I am not super happy with the meta right now, so I'm not playing that as much. And then I am playing Fire Emblem Three Houses and Castlevania Symphony of the Night, because I managed to miss, miss that when I was a kid. Playing all those first-person shooters, I didn't actually get around much to uh, <laughs> games on consoles until, until well, truthfully, in my 20s. Uh, so I've been playing a lot of classic console <laughs> games, and right now I'm absolutely head over heels for Symphony of the Night. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I think at some point, uh, we were just talking about maybe releasing like a blog on some of the changes that World of Warcraft has done in Shadowlands, specifically around like the level squishing to make it like more accessible to players who, you know, maybe you, you played for a while and you want to get back into it. And it's like, geez, I got to get up to level what? <laughs> so I think the level squishing was a really good call, especially because it allows you to have the full story of one expansion, at least that you're playing <laughs> through. But I, I don't know if you realize this, they actually did a squishing of the level experience from 50 to 60 uh, with the expansion itself, which they haven't done before. But there was a trade-off there where instead they built out far more end game content and made the end game systems much more intriguing, complex, uh, expansive than they have previously. And I think that was a really good call. Um, while there's not quite as much love with the, the stories going through those first uh, 10 levels or the last 10 levels rather, I think having that end game content be so well thought out allows people to stay hooked right? To, to stay engaged with it, what you want to see in an MMO. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
That's and great. certainly what what they'll need with Cyberpunk <laughs> 2077. I'm I'm pretty stoked to see you know what all comes out with so much hype going on about that game. So it'll be interesting. So let's talk about IDGA a little bit. You know, how did you get involved there? Like, what's the story behind that? So I started my video game development career in Seattle. And in 2015, I was at a conference and I went up to the IGDA Seattle booth there with some you know, critical feedback on how they could improve their support for the local game industry. And it turns out I was actually talking to the chair of IGDA Seattle at the time, and he appreciated that I was coming up and giving open um, feedback and asked me to attend their board meetings. Uh, So I started attending their board meetings and then became an official part of the IGDA Seattle board while supporting the local community in Seattle. About two years into that, I applied to be on the international board and was elected by the Greater IGDA membership and served on the executive board as the secretary for about two and a half years. And then our executive director at the time, Jen McLean, stepped down and I applied for her position and was appointed as the executive director. So I've been doing that for about a year and a half now. Yeah. So, so what does full-time work for an executive director of IDGA actually look like? What's your, what's your day like? Yeah. So the IGDA's mission is to support and empower game developers around the world in fulfilling, achieving, and sustainable careers. And we do that through providing knowledge and resources such as white papers, webinars, items like that. By supporting community, we have over 100 chapters and special interest groups around the globe and across disciplines and affinity groups. And then by by really advocating for developers. So in order to fulfill those pillars as part of our mission, I end up taking a lot of meetings and doing a lot of emails uh, and then working on programs, whether that is initiatives to better support students in games, or if it's a mentorship program to support mid-career developers within the game industry, or if it's to host items and events like our holiday hackathon, our holiday chair hackathon to support developers who can't travel home to see their families for the holidays. That's cool. So when you say advocate for developers, what what does that actually mean? It means I stand up, uh, the IGDA stands up for developers and their best interests. We take uh, hard stances when it comes to industry issues. We released our own industry standards and event diversity standards, and we inform government entities of the game industry from a developer's perspective, not from a company's Mm. perspective. So last year I sat in a panel in front of the FTC and talked to them about loot boxes and gave them a presentation about loot box regulations and what it means for developers and even shared quotes from developers from our membership that were both for and against restrictions on loot boxes while making sure the government understood that they had to be very specific about defining what a loot box is because <laughs> games have random reward mechanics built in and have since the early 80s. So yeah. if you say a 
a dragon can't drop random loot, you're suddenly <laughs> affecting far more games than would be defined normally by loot boxes. <laughs> too true, too true. Well, that's cool. So um, let's say I'm a student or I'm working at a game company and I haven't really gotten involved in IDGA, but I, I think it could be kind of cool to get involved. Like what should be a first step for me? I would say the first step is subscribing to our newsletter and checking our communities. If you go to our website under resources, there's the insider newsletter. It's completely free to sign up to. It's once a week. We send it out on Wednesdays and it gives you an overview of what the IGDA is doing as well as upcoming industry events and then other articles just about industry news in general. And then we actually have really active communities online, but right now I'd recommend joining the IGDA Discord, just discord.gg slash IGDA. And we have about 3000 developers on that Discord who are active in sharing their victories, supporting each other. There's a really active advice channel that I see students coming in to for portfolio reviews and other questions constantly and, and getting really good feedback. That's awesome. Do you have any advice for students in particular that are, you know, looking to land that first job? Like I, I hear a lot of people that uh, <laughs> kind of feel like there's this struggle where, okay, I'm getting ready to graduate school and I look at all the entry-level jobs and they're like requires, you know, two to five years of experience and I'm, <laughs> I'm just graduating. So, but I need to get that job to get the experience. Like, you know, what, you know, I guess, and this maybe gets into a little bit of if we can put your CEO stumbling cat hat on here of, of building a team, you know, uh, what do you look for? You know, let's say I'm a senior, like, what could I show you? Or what could I come with? How could I approach you where you'd be like, wow, Tom, I've got to get you on my team. I don't really care that you're coming right out of school, you're going to be a great asset. Definitely. I think portfolios are the number one item that you should spend time on polishing if you're going to be applying to specific job openings. Your portfolio is what people will look at to see that you can truly work on projects and get projects done. And hopefully, if you're interested in game development during your school time, you have worked on some projects. But if you haven't, that's okay. I recommend joining game jams uh, and just creating smaller projects to prove that you can do game development and produce something. And obviously, artists have portfolios, but programmers can have portfolios. Designers should have portfolios. Project managers can even have portfolios. It just has to be a record of your works and how you contributed to them. It sort of expands your resume, really. Aside from that, when I am hiring for a team, the number one thing that I look for are self-starters. So having a portfolio, even if you don't have experience <laughs> in school, shows that you are a self-starter. You've gone out, you've found projects, you've made projects, you're working on things. Also, making sure that being a self-starter comes through in your, your cover letter, your interviews, talking about how you seek knowledge, how you are eager to learn, what you're doing to currently improve yourself is all very important. And to improve yourself, I recommend doing networking because connections are key, both for finding jobs and for finding people who will support you throughout your entire career, answer your questions, find your contractors, whatever it is. And working on your self-pitch and your self-growth, 
you know, knowing how to present yourself compellingly, say, I am a self-starter that is good at giving critical feedback and accepting feedback, who works well with teams, who has done these four game jams. And yes, I'm right out of school, but you won't find someone who is eager to work for your company and learn about your processes as myself. That That's gold star material and it'll get you in a lot of doors. That's great. Do you think it is important as a person looking for a job to take a look at a company's culture and make sure like, even before like applying to different roles, like, Hey, this, this company has this culture with these things that feel like they really vibe with me. And this one, even though they maybe have the perfect opening, those company cultures, you know, don't quite vibe with me. Like, would you, you know, pick one versus the other, or how would you frame that and and choose that and approach it? I think that it is always important to look at company culture, especially as you're doing your initial searches for which companies to apply to. I wouldn't hold back from applying to companies, though. I would apply to everything that you think is interesting, particularly as your first job. It will give you a lot of experience going through that interview process. Even if the company ends up not being one that works out well for you, you don't have to accept their job offer. Um, but sometimes companies are bad at portraying themselves. So it helps mm-hmm. to not judge a book by its cover on that front. And it is good practice in an interview to further dig into a company's culture. So doing your research before on a company's culture allows you to come into that interview prepared. And it is the questions that you answer in your interview are almost as important as the questions you ask. I actually think (laughs) I am more impressed when I am hosting interviews by someone who comes to the interview prepared with insightful questions than with insightful answers. Yeah. I like that a lot. So come prepared with the good questions, really, you know, think about it. Yeah. I actually um, was recently interviewing someone and, and she came and she'd like listened to all my podcasts and like gone through all these things. And I was like, wow, she, she, she knows everything, like knows us better than we know ourselves. Um, and, and that was really cool to see. Um, and, and we were like super jived by, and she had really great questions and stuff too. So I I think those types of things really do matter a lot. That's great. So the short summary is, you know, if you're not involved in IDGA, there's no reason why you shouldn't be like, we're all part of this industry. So at least join the newsletter, like, join the discord, like, uh, you know, start absorbing some of that stuff. You know, we should all be learning. I would say that's one of the most important things in gaming is things move so fast. So always be learning. (laughs) And that's why we're doing this podcast to share knowledge too. So love it. Um, one thing you did kind of talk a little bit about was, uh, networking with people. So we're kind of in an interesting situation right now, which is COVID and everything is kind of transitioned to virtual and stuff. So I'd, I'd love to dive into just conferences in general, and then we'll maybe get to the virtual stuff too. But, you know, I, I did have a chance to watch a little bit about a, a potions video uh, that was post GDC. I think it was like from 2015. Um, and, uh, curious if your thoughts have changed at all around conferences and such since then, but, um, 
you know, I'd love to see like, what do you think about conferences and are there certain ones that are worth going to or not going to? And at what point, like, should I be going to conferences or not be going to them? Because they can be costly and they can be time consuming. You know, what's the good, bad and ugly? I think that the value a conference brings depends on how much you're willing to make of it. If you're someone who just really is, you know, more introverted and has a hard time going out, conferences can be a good way to get information. But I would encourage you if you go to a conference to try to at least pretend to be an extrovert, meet new people, introduce yourself and make those connections. Because I find personally that the greatest value that conferences have is that networking, is making those connections because they will benefit you for the rest of your career, if not the rest of your life. Now, which conferences to attend again, depends on your interests. If you're an indie game developer, then going to IndieCade is probably more beneficial than going to E3. I think that GDC is a truly wonderful conference, same with DevCom. And those are both great opportunities to meet people from around the world and build up your network while learning new and interesting things. With it being virtual these days... Some conferences have done a virtual networking situation where you're running around in a game and you can run up to people and and talk with them. I think that works okay. I actually really like it when the online conferences have a Discord or a Slack that is attached to them and allows attendees to talk to each other or um, just chat about general subjects that are coming up. It's a good way to network there. And many conferences are now using Meet to Match or similar networking platforms where during the conference itself, you can schedule meetings with people that you'd like to connect with. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Have you found success with some of those virtual things of actually like, how do you, you know, find or, or reach out to people? You know, I, for me, it, it seems like it would be a little bit daunting. Like, okay, I, I want to find some people to talk to at White Nights and I open up their thing and there's 20,000 people that are in there. And it's like, how do I, you know, even begin to find, you know, the right people to talk to? Like, maybe I have a game that I'm looking for a publisher, you know, how would you approach that? Just engaging with communities is the important first step. I mean, if there's 20,000 people in that Discord, I can assure you that there's only a few hundred of them that are actually talking in it regularly. Um, I think that one-on-one connections are easier to do. So if someone posts something interesting, you can at them or private message them. Depending on the rules of the Discord or Slack, you know, be careful with private messages and (laughs) engage them about it or ask for their feedback. I always recommend when you're networking to treat someone as a potential friend, not as a potential job offer. It becomes really awkward if if you're a game developer at a conference and people come up to you and go, wow, you work for this AAA studio? I love them. Do you have job openings for me? <laughs> it's like, ah, I'm just here to, <laughs> to hang out with my friends and learn about video game development. I'm not sure. I'm not a recruiter, right? If it's a recruiter, maybe go for it. Uh, but outside of that, you want to say, 
oh, hey, you work for this AAA studio. I really loved your your last game. I found the quest system really intriguing. It, it kept things fresh. And then the person might be, oh, okay, well, might be a bit of a fan. That's fine. But uh, they're more willing to engage with you than if you're just <laughs> trying to get something from them initially, right? Hold on, Renee. Are you saying we should te- treat people like people? <laughs> it's surprising, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I uh, it actually worked really well for me throughout my career. I've been in the game industry for a while now, but when I was starting out, I went to a lot of conferences and I happened to meet people who had been in the industry for decades and had uh, well-known names and I just treated them like everyone else and they became very good friends because apparently treating people like people is something, particularly people who are not often treated like people, really appreciate. I love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, I would love to spend a little time and I'm going to ask you some questions about kind of stumbling cat and, and your journey and stuff now, uh, particularly because I heard something that was interesting. And so this was the idea that um, when you start a studio and I can't remember who did this, it might've been uh, carbon studios or something, but they were like, so what we wanted to do is we'd never worked together before. So we wanted to just start, taking on some contract works and doing projects together to like establish, you know, who the teams are and and what it's like to work together. Because sometimes when you're starting a studio and you've all worked together at say Rovio and now you start your own studio, like you kind of understand what it's like to, to work together. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and he kind of mentioned, you know, what we did is we started taking on this contract work and just established like, okay, this is what it's like to work together, how to rely on each other and, and do that. Um, and then eventually we were able to like move to making our own projects and things like that. Um, but you know, you mentioned when you started something cat, you started doing that contract work. So um, would you say that doing contract work is valuable and useful before you move into something else? Is that something you'd recommend other folks do or would you say go straight to the games? Right. I, I wasn't contracting. I wasn't doing contract work through stumbling cat. I was acting as a contractor on my own. And that was actually several, like a year and a half after establishing stumbling cat itself. Mm -hmm. So I think that building experience is really important and contract work is a good way to build experience quickly because if you're doing a nine month contract, you get to have nine months on a new team, nine months on a new project, and that allows you to rapidly get experience and titles under your belt, which I think are really important for getting the information and knowledge to not only be successful in your career, but successful in running your own studio. Mm. I, I try to pick everyone's brain so that I can uh, when it comes to getting information to make Stumbling Cat successful. I found my contract work definitely enriched my skill set and provided me with connections that allowed me to further improve uh, Stumbling Cat. But Stumbling Cat is an interesting studio in that everyone who works there aside from myself is a contractor. So I pay, I paid my team and I've paid my team since the beginning upfront for all of their efforts. Most indie studios don't have the capital overhead, especially 
new 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 developer blood in these studios uh not not triple a developers with yep. big fancy titles uh going <laughs> being able to pull in 60 million dollars um and because of that it allowed me to really support my team and show appreciation appreciation for their work financially but it also created a bit of a weird dynamic because I, I am a boss, right? I'm not just a friend. And I, I am, I try to be very friendly and I want to be uh, someone who is seen as completely open, easy to talk to and their friend. But it's not the same dynamic if three of my best friends and I got together and decided to start a studio. That that has a very different feeling than being a one person starting a studio and hiring mm. contractors. Definitely. If you had to do it all over again, let's say we're starting Stumbling Cat 2.0, do you think you would follow the same route or would you go more of trying to raise money offhand? Because I think you guys went, did the Kickstarter route, right? We did do the Kickstarter route. I would do the same route. However, I would build out more of the game in the programming side um, prior to doing the Kickstarter. So... Kickstarter backers don't always understand that things can be very pretty without being done. And I knew that people wanted things to be very pretty for their Kickstarters. So I made sure that we had good trailers and art for that. Uh, but I think that despite being very open about the, in the, the state of the project, which was very, very new, it just had some basic systems in some people expected it to have been further along upon the backing of it. And since I can create content very rapidly since it's a modular game and it's a very content heavy game, I find that my contractors who are working part-time have a hard time um, producing content at the same rate that I'm creating it. But I also don't have... Uh, enough time to pull them in as full-time and just get them to sprint it out in three months. So I'm in this awkward state where because they're part-time, they're slower than how fast I'm developing it. But if I were to make them full-time, then they would be faster than I'm developing it. <laughs> and if I had just built almost all of it out in the code side and, and white boxed it all, and then hired contractors to do a six-month sprint on getting all mm. of the assets in there, I think that would have actually been a better approach for the game. But the reason I did the Kickstarter was because I wasn't sure enough people would be interested in the game to dedicate so much of my time to making it. And the Kickstarter yeah. helped prove that that was the case. There, there were a lot of people who were interested in the game and supporting the project. Yeah. No, I, I love validation of games before you spend time doing them. Um, I, I do a lot of stuff in the mobile space, so I am a big fan of, you know, fake app store tests and, and marketing creatives and building a prototype and like having the video out there as an ad. And like, if it's not enticing enough to, you know, attract certain people, you, you can pretty easily tell like, yeah, this is probably very wrong, or at least this art style is very wrong. And so you can, you know, iterate before you spend too much time and effort building something that, you know, no one really wants to play. So I, I do think Kickstarter for PC is a great way to kind of bet that, yeah, there is interest here. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really smart approach. Uh, I'm, I'm now filing that away in my head for <laughs> the next time I, I'm researching an idea. <laughs> yeah, the, um, there's a few different companies that do it. Like I know uh, Store Maven or Play Maven is one. Um, there's like a couple others that you can do too, but a lot of people will just like run some ads on Facebook to, to, to test it out. <laughs> so I'm, I'm learning a lot. Uh, I've been talking to a lot of hyper casual developers lately, um, on how they, their ads are basically 30 seconds of actual gameplay. And if they can get so many people to click in a certain CPI that it meets a threshold, then they move forward with the game. Otherwise they just like throw it out and they like, do another prototype with the 30 second play. So it's super interesting. It's a really efficient way to do it. I mean, video game development is all about prototypes and iteration. So being able to get a lot of eyes on your prototype and approval or not of that is really smart, especially in the mobile space. <laughs> so for folks that are thinking of doing a Kickstarter, what was that process like? Like, how did you approach it? How much time did it actually take? I spent a year during the initial development of Potions of Curious Tale researching what it would be like to have a Kickstarter campaign and planning it. So I I started thinking I would launch a Kickstarter campaign uh, in March and then launched that campaign the next April, I think, around there. So it took me about 13 months to, to launch the campaign itself. And I highly recommend unless you are very well-versed in Kickstarter to spend a significant amount of time researching what is currently popular on Kickstarter, what successful teams have done, talking with teams who have had successful Kickstarter projects and hearing about the positives and negatives of the experience. I found some critical information that I didn't expect, like don't have physical rewards below $100 unless you want to spend all your time preparing and giving away physical rewards. Because um, even if the cost of shipping is calculated in there, the cost of your time preparing all of that shipping is not. And going through third parties to handle that can be expensive. Yeah. I was able to tailor my reward tiers based on other games of similar genres slightly similar genres that were successful. And it allowed me to get a good distribution of backers across those reward tiers and some significant backers because of that as well. So that was definitely great research. And then polish, 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 polish. People who are Kickstarter backers are not necessarily game developers. So if you tell them your concepts and you show them a game design document or anything else, they don't understand it nearly as well as they understand some pictures and some GIFs and a nice looking trailer and some well-written copy. Like truly it is a huge marketing pitch and the more you tailor it and the more you tune it and the more you make sure that it gets people excited, the more likely it's going to be successful. I think that community building is also important, but it can be hard to get build communities for non-launched games. So going mm -hmm. to conferences, whether online or in person, are, is a great way to start building up your email list. And so is relying and networking with developers who are creating products similar to your own. So at the time, I 
networked a lot with other indie game developers. And then when my Kickstarter launched, I had a huge network of people who had fan bases who liked games like my own. And so <laughs> they were able to share the news about my Kickstarter to those fan bases and send a lot of traffic my way. That's, that's awesome. I love that. I did have one question that was, we're going to jump back a little bit. So you were talking about uh, the importance of having a portfolio and, and you said, you know, even a developer can have a portfolio and stuff. What do you think, or do you think it is important to have other skills in game development? Like, let's say I want to be a game designer or just like a level designer or something like that. Do you think that it is important for me to know how to like code in C sharp and build out like a full game in unity? Do you think it's important to know how to do some of those art assets or, or different things like that? You know, or, or can I just really focus in on that level design stuff that I think I want to do? I think having breadth of experience and knowledge makes you a more valuable developer. If you are a level designer and you know more about code, then you know more about the level systems to ask engineers to build and you understand if they're communicating potential issues. If you are a level designer and you know more about art, then you can ensure that you are building your levels to best make use of the art assets and approach that your art team is going to be taking on that project. Uh, and if you are a producer, you should know what everyone does because <laughs> if you're going to be helping them, empowering them, keeping them on, on time and on budget, knowing how they work and how they work with each other is extremely important. <laughs> so I think that it is important to have both depth and breadth of skills. And I think that game jams are a great way to do that because you can say, Hey, yeah, I'm normally an artist, but today I'm going to be the programmer for our game. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try to figure this out together. Uh, or, you know, I, I did a game jam in the middle of developing potions because I started having imposter syndrome about my skill as a designer. So I went to a game jam, said I'm going to be pretty much purely a designer on a game. Uh, and then that game won the local game jam for its design. So that helped boost my ego and make me feel more confident in my abilities to successfully design my game. I love that. Yeah. And, and so for you guys that don't know, I'm actually also self-taught on how to code. And if I can teach myself how to code and the secret to, to like learning how to code is like, once you get over that initial hump, it's really just like playing a game. It's like each, each feature you add is like, Oh, I, I beat the level or like, Oh, this is a super tough boss. I'm going to have to consult stack overflow. Um, and you know, <laughs> you, you eventually cobble together a solution and it might not be the most elegant coding, but like you get better over time. You can see other examples. It, it can be quite fun. And I, you know, I think I got to the point where, um, I was playing around with some unity assets and, uh, you know, I found one for just like, uh, procedurally generating stuff. And then I, you know, grabbed some graphics and stuff. And within like 15 minutes of playing around, I had a, a Skyrim quality looking game that was like procedurally generated and I can run around and, and slash at things. I didn't have any creatures or bosses or anything in there, but like, I was like, wow, you can prototype things really fast, like looking really good. And, 
it's surprisingly simple once you just get over that initial hump. And so I would definitely encourage people to just like push yourselves. And the great thing is like, once you know how to code, if you're doing that, you know, game design <laughs> bit or whatnot, you can actually look at, oh, what, what data is getting sent over to this game? Like, what can I do? What can I ask my programmer to do knowing behind the scenes? Oh, that's going to take them like three weeks to do, or this little change is going to take them you know, three minutes, you just change the variable. Um, I think that can be super powerful and just help you work so much closer as a team. Absolutely. Completely agree. Having that understanding of the complexity of the correct requests you're making and how to make those systems fit well together is truly wonderful. And I feel like many people who haven't done programming are far too intimidated by it. I always describe programming as it's a set of tools and all of those tools are very, very basic. They're like Legos. They're small building blocks <laughs> and you stack them all together and you can make giant impressive castles with gates and, you know, dragons and whatever else. But when it comes down to it is they're just little tiny tools that all fit together. <laughs> so it's figuring out how to cobble them together to, to get the results you want. Yeah, at the end, everything just kind of comes down to those like different variables and how they work together. It's super simple. It's just, uh, intimidating at first, but like, once you get into it, you're like, Oh, okay. Well, this is kind of fun. So definitely do that. Cool. One last question that I kind of had on here. So jumping back to your studio side of stuff, let's say I decide that I want to start a studio today. Like what are my options around, you know, funding and publishing and what does that actually mean to me? Like, as a studio, like, let's say I do go down a funding route or a publishing route, like, what do those things actually mean to me and my ability to like maintain creative control of my studio and like the path that my studio is taking? Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons that I went with Kickstarter and not a more traditional funding route is because I wanted to maintain creative control over the project. And Kickstarter does a very good job of supporting that. As long as you deliver on the Promise Project and don't upset your community too much, everything <laughs> is, is fine in that regard. It also allows for flexibility when it comes to milestones and other deadlines, whereas working with the publisher, you might run into funding issues if you're unable to make the timing for those, those deadlines. Depending on your contract with that publisher, they might have certain requirements or require that they give approval for each of those milestones and have some creative control, but publisher agreements can be everything from a marketing agreement where they just market your game for you for a cut of the profits all the way down to they nearly take over your entire studio and team to, to finish the game itself. I think that when you're thinking about how to launch a studio, you should think about how you plan to fund the studio because that will affect pretty much all of your decisions that go into that studio, such as the compensation of the other people working with you. If you are a studio of friends and you decide to do profit sharing, figuring out how you're going to do profit sharing and figuring out what you're going to do with the profit sharing if one of those friends 
decides they don't want to engage anymore and, and how everything is handled in relation to that is really important because it is very easy to get in a bad situation because someone suddenly has a baby and can't participate or there's a fight or something like that. And also if you promise compensation uh, based on the amount of income earned by that game, that affects the agreements that you can have with publishers. Cause a lot of times you're going to be looking for a percentage of those revenue uh, as, as compensation for their financial or advertising or whatever support they're providing. When you're looking at other types of funding outside of publishers, there's really a lot of opportunities. People often overlook the possibility to get grants for game development. That's actually something that I'm probably going to look into next for Stumbling Cat's next game. Is that if you're creating educational games or games with historical or cultural value, it is likely that you can find funding from nonprofits or government entities or something else, you know, foundations uh, to create that title. And that's a really nice type of funding in terms of you keep fairly good creative control. You know, you're working on a product that's doing good for the world. Uh, and I think it's something that game developers don't pursue a lot. Mm. I've been talking with some of my friends who are making these slightly educational games and getting grants for them. And they've found it to be quite successful. That's cool. Is there any information around like different grants and stuff on the IDGA website or white paper or anything like that? Like if I wanted to dig into that or is that something I need to look for myself? We have, we had an article where we shared a link to um, the Federal Games Guild website. Uh, the Federal Games Guild is a non-official government entity made up of government entities uh, or people representing them that supports game developers in their engagement with the government, including getting grants. So they have a wonderful page uh, on their website that talks about all the potential funding opportunities that the various government entities are offering for game development. So I would Google Federal Games Guild. And if you Google IGDA and Federal Games Guild, you'll certainly find it. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Cool. Well, I know we're almost out of time here. So I have one last question. And this is the unofficial question I try to ask everyone. You know, if you had one tip to boost your player's retention, uh, which, you know, can mean anything, you know, in a PC game, it might be, you know, playing your DLC or playing your next game or whatnot, or coming back and engaging with this new content. Mobile games, obviously, it kind of is tied into your, you know, keeping them around after they download, come back and play. Uh, but if you had one tip towards, you know, boosting player retention, what would it be? To tune the emotions in your game. Uh, I'll expand on that a little. What I mean by tune the emotions is that people play video games to experience many things, but almost all of them are related to emotions, whether that emotion is being scared through horror games or feeling accomplishments or getting sweet headshot victories. Um, it is those emotional experiences and reactions that people remember. And it can be you're playing a match three game and having those particularly satisfying matches is just 
you know, ticking off those, uh, yay, happy feels and uh, hormones in your brain, but tuning those emotions and making sure that there is a good variety of them and that the pacing of them happens at a rate which can keep a player interested and engaged without burning out helps improve retention, whether it is a single player title or a mobile free to play game where you're constantly producing more and more content, but it is easy to get lost in the numbers and tuning and forgetting that people play games because they like to feel reactions to them. And so I think tuning for emotions is probably the best way that you can increase retention. Have you ever come across any information on like, what is the right, like, is it every three minutes there should be like an opportunity for a player to just get that, like, you know, satisfying dopamine hit of, Oh, I, I crafted the perfect gem so I can do my match three or, you know, I'm, I'm fighting a boss and, and it's like the, the last little bit, suddenly you make the, the miss rate go up. So it's much more intense. You're like trying to beat the boss or the damage of your sword goes up. So you just kind of wow, wow, wow. But oh, you know, I think that if there are any studies that go into that level of detail, they're probably maintained by the mobile companies that do those (laughs) research. Um, I do think that there are some really great conference talks on how to add juice to your game or ways to make a situation feel scarier or better. Like horror games, everyone probably knows this by now. Horror games try not to kill you because dying makes the situation less scary. Getting close to dying is much more frightening than dying itself. So they actually give you a lot of leeway before you are killed in a horror game to to keep up that intensity. So depending on the type of game that you're working on, I recommend doing research around what other designers and other companies have done. And then just think about and play test your own game itself. Playtesting and iteration are super, super key. So see what your user base is saying, see what they're experiencing. Live ops is obviously a great way to do that, but just doing normal playtesting is great too. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Renee, thank you so much for jumping on this show. I've had such a pleasure chatting with you today. Um, if people want to get in touch with you with like any questions or things, is there a a good way for them to do that? Yeah, there's actually just a a contact form on the IGA website. So IGDA.org is a great way. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at R-I-K-U-K-T, RikuCat. That is my gamer tag. So uh, (laughs) not my my real name, but you'll find me there. (laughs) Love it. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Renee. Really appreciate you joining on the show. And hopefully we'll have you back at some point in the future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.